0: Uh, So I was uh, looking at an old, famous uh, Peter Drucker quote this week. He says, Nothing is less productive than to make more efficient what should not be done at all. Let me read that again. Nothing is less productive than to make more efficient what should not be done at all. And sometimes it seems like our entire world is in this race to make more productive things that shouldn't be done at all, or maybe they don't matter. And we get caught up, and we don't even realize what we're doing sometimes. Um, And 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 this series that we're starting called "Poured Into" is really about becoming more effective in the things that matter most. What are those things, and how do we become more effective? So, would you open with me to the Gospel of Mark? We're starting. We're going to be sort of cherry picking a few passages in the Gospel of Mark to help us uh, along explore this theme of being poured into. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and we would give one to you. Um, Please uh, don't be shy. Raise your hand. It's on page 577. And again, this is a Bible you can take home with you if you need one. Mark 1, verse 16. Nothing is less productive than to make more efficient what should not be done at all. Well, what should be done? What should we be doing with our lives? Let's look at this text and see what God has to say. We're diving in right at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And in verse 16, um, the story is told of Jesus calling the first disciples. It says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, He, Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and followed him, Jesus. Now let me set the scene for you a little bit, so you can kind of imagine what's happening here we got to get into the moment and the, the, the real beauty of it, I think. Physically, they're along the, the Sea of Galilee, which if you can imagine in your mind's eye, actually I have a picture of it if you go to the next slide. Um, the Sea of Galilee is about seven miles across and 14 miles long. It's got these hills on one side, just a beautiful, people talk about it as being one of the most beautiful regions. And so you can imagine this, this scene. Um, it's right at the nexus of commercial and military routes, so you had all kinds of people streaming by and through this region, um, and that created a little bit of a melting pot socially, so you had, you know, uh, Jews there, and, but you also had this Greek influence there, and you had people coming in and out, and it was sort of a, this, this crossroads for the world. Um, and, and, and so this melting pot created a, a kind of a, a mixing together, and so you can imagine Jesus You know, walking into this where there was already so much going on, and being sort of um, now a new voice, a powerful voice in the middle of this environment, and uh, some amazing things happen in the scriptures in the area of Galilee. So, uh, last week the story that we read, uh, the Great Commission, this happens after Jesus rises, and he tells the disciples to go meet him in Galilee. Remember, we said that this because it's a place of abundance and where great ministry happened, and there was fruitfulness. And so it was kind of a reminder to them when, they, when after they'd gone through all the pain and the loss and the suffering associated with Jesus' death on the cross, but then they're in this new period of abundance, and he says, meet me in Galilee. What a beautiful thing. And they remember that when they're in Galilee, they remember all the ministry that Jesus did. Um, and so that story happened. And then there was also uh, you know, some miracles that happen around Galilee, in particular with respect to the disciples. The The miraculous catch of fish, two different times happens. Um, One, when the disciples are first being called, and then after the resurrection, when Jesus is resending them out, another miraculous catch of fish. Because these guys were fishermen. They they were fishermen. And that was really what was going on in um, the place of Galilee. Economically, it was all about fishing. So you've got towns called uh, Bethsaida, which means house of fish. And you've got uh, Magdala, which means fish town. And you have Terakeh, which means salted fish. It's like a bunch of <laughs> restaurants, right? Um, because there was just, the whole region was about fishing. And, and not only just fishing for that area, they would actually send the fish. They found signs of fish from the Sea of Galilee in places like Egypt and, and uh, other places, far-reaching places. So this was, a, this was what was going on in this region. And. Um, and, and, and they're casting their nets, which means that they, they would take this, this round circular net of about 20 feet across and fold it up in their arms, and it had weights on it. And they, there's a special – you can go on YouTube and watch people doing this because they still do this in places of the world. It's really cool. They take this net, and they fold it up in their arms a special way, and then they hurl it out like this. And as soon as they hurl it, the net, because of the weights, it's spinning, spreads open, and then drops onto the water – and then slowly sinks down, and then they would catch the fish. And so they're doing that when Jesus comes by. And in fact, Luke, if you look at Luke's telling of this, Jesus is actually trying to teach the crowd, and he comes along, and he gets into Simon's boat, and he he says to Simon, push him out onto the water, and then Jesus teaches the crowd. And have you ever been in a lake on a really smooth morning? and you can say something, and your voice bounces across the water because it's really smooth. This is why probably Jesus was pushed out into the lake, because he could speak to a large crowd of people on the shore of Galilee, uh, and and his voice would carry a long distance. So Simon, in, in Luke's telling of this same event, Simon pushes Jesus out, and then afterwards Jesus says, you know, put your nets down over here. He says, we've been fishing all day, we haven't caught any, all morning we haven't caught anything And so then he says, "But put your nets over here." And they put their nets down, and they and then they get this miraculous catch. And in fact, their boats start to sink, and they get their partner boats to come over, and then those boats start to sink because they're so filled with fish. So this is all the background. And and who are these these people? Simon, um, Simon is going to be later called Peter. So you know of him as Peter. This is the Peter, the leader of all the disciples, the one who's known to be impulsive. And his brother Andrew. We don't hear much about it here, but in the Gospel of John, we hear about Andrew. He's sometimes referred as the evangelist because he's actually the one that went and got Peter, Simon, and brought him to Jesus. Uh, and then he's the one that finds the, 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 um, the, the kids with the loaves and the fishes. And, and he's always going, it seems like, and finding people and bringing them to Jesus. And then we have James and John who are sons of Zebedee. Zebedee, be, I would imagine Zebedee was a, was a, was a well-known fisherman because that's what this region was about. And so every time they're mentioned, they're referred to as the Sons of Zebedee. So people first reading the Gospels would have known about this guy, Zebedee, right? So old Zebedee's sons, right? Um, So they probably were going to take over the family fishing business and all of that. And these guys were a little bit, it sounds like, kind of like Peter, kind of that impulsive um, personality. Um, They're called Sons of Thunder, Boanerges is their nickname uh, that they're given. And uh, one of the greatest examples is when they're, Later on, they're in a Samaritan village that rejects Jesus, and they say, Jesus, do you, want to call down, do you want us to call down fire to destroy this village? And Jesus is like, no, you know, relax. Um, these guys are sort of that impulsive and intense kind of. So those are some of the things that we know about these people. So the reason I'm bringing all this up is because I want you to connect with this being a very normal scene. This is just life happening on the shores of Galilee. And in walks Jesus to sort of explode it. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe this is a little bit like your story. You were going along and doing the things that people do um, and in walked Jesus to your life and sort of exploded. Not a few of us are surprised, really, that we're even sitting in this room this morning. We didn't have this plan for our lives, that we would be somebody who would consider themselves to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus walked into our lives... And called us by name. And we have been following him. And it explodes. When Jesus does that, it sort of explodes what you expected of your life. It changes everything that you had expected. Because what's really going on here? Let's, let's, get, let's get behind. Now, that's the scene. You know, if you were to actually, you know, see what's going on there, you can see that. But what's going on underneath? What's the deeper sort of movement that's happening and for that, we need to go back a couple of verses into verse 14. Verse 14 in chapter 1 of Mark. It says, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So this is what's, what Mark tells us you know, immediately before telling us about the calling of these disciples. And so we make sense of this scene on the shore of Galilee in light of the verses that came before it. And what it says is that the time is fulfilled. See, there's been this waiting going on with the people of Israel for as long as we can reach back into the Old Testament. You go back to the very beginning, and you remember Abraham was waiting for us, and Sarah waiting for a son. And then Moses is waiting to enter into the promised land and Israel is waiting for a king. And then they get a king, and there's all kinds of disobedience, so the prophets come, and the prophets are waiting for Israel to turn in obedience to God. And then after they fail to do so, the people of Israel are scattered around, and and they're they're, they're in exile in various parts of the land, and they're waiting to be brought back into the promised land. There's just waiting and waiting and waiting. So by now, in the history of Israel, there's this huge anticipation that's been building up, and, 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 and it's kind of reflected, maybe if we can just pause and think about our lives, our lives often are a little bit of a microcosm of that, what are you waiting for, How can you connect into the story of Israel as you think about the things that you're waiting for in your life, what kinds of changes have you been waiting for, what kinds of uh, dreams have you been hoping for, what kinds of relationships have you been waiting for, Um, We see all of that. that It's part of the human condition to be waiting. We can imagine something greater. It's part of the story of Israel to be waiting. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting. What are you waiting for? What are they waiting for? And into that waiting steps Jesus Christ as the solution, as the answer to our waiting. Because now the kingdom of God is at hand. And you know it because Jesus is the guy. And if you were to go back through chapter one, you'd see he steps up and he says, here's the vision, going back and quoting Isaiah. And then he's baptized and God says, the voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son. So, um, so not only is he the guy, but he's, he's got the backing of, of God. And then he's, he's tested in the wilderness and he comes out of that. And so... All this waiting is now being broken by the incoming of Jesus Christ and his reign. That's what kingdom of God means, the reign of Jesus Christ. And the way that we get on board with this transformation that's happening is there at the very end of verse 15. Look with, look with me at that. And saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is hand. Do you want to get on board? Okay, here's how you get on board. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. So it's that framework that surrounds this calling of the disciples along that shore in Galilee. That that Jesus, when he wants to send out his gospel, he doesn't go just to the synagogue, he goes to the lake. And he finds people in the middle of, of their daily lives, and he calls them to be a part of this incredible inbreaking of hope and renewal and joy and gospel. He says, come, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They're just plying their trade. They're just doing their thing, and Jesus breaks in. And if we step back and we think about why God would do it this way, why would He he take an average person and impel them, empower them to go out with His gospel? Well, there's a couple of things that sort of make sense. Um, This is a lot more effective way for Jesus to get His message out by sending it through ambassadors reading in um, The Trellis and the Vine. This is a book I've been encouraging our leaders to read. And if you want to pick up a copy of it and, and read it, I really encourage you to do that. He says this. He says, you know, when we think about church, what if, you know, what if a, think about it, they use the analogy of a doctor. What if a doctor said, you know, it's, it's really too much effort for me to meet with all my patients. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to call them all together and I'm just going to distribute one medicine to them all, the same medicine. And hopefully it'll take care of most of what they're, they're dealing with. Right? We would, we would think the doctor has gone crazy, right? Well, God is, 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 is sensitive in that same way. He doesn't just simply give one. He sends out people who can meet with people and diagnose and be a part of other people's lives so that they can meet the specific needs of each person. And the calling of these disciples is the beginning of that process, to send out... A whole army of people who will meet with people to pour into them. To bring the gospel to bear into their lives in a way that's specifically tuned to their unique circumstances and situations and to who they are. So not only is it more effective to do it this way, but it's also more fun. Because what this means is that your average person gets to be a part of the most exciting thing that's going on since the beginning of time. The redemption of all things, the the proclamation of the gospel. That we as human beings, just a lot of times feeling very average and regular, plying our trade, we get to be a part of what God is doing in the world. The great thing that God is doing. The most exciting thing. One of my earliest memories as a child is missing out on a trip to Disneyland. Uh, We lived in San Diego, and all of my relatives were from Canada, so we had this steady stream of Canadians coming to our house, and they would always want to go to Disneyland. And one of my very first memories is being too young, and my older brother got to go to Disneyland. And I remember standing at the window watching them drive away, right? (laughs) Like, I don't know how old I was, but, you know, tears. it was around that time that I think they found flies in my mouth from that window. I think I was just a nervous wreck and started eating flies or something. Uh, it was this horrible experience. It was one of my early, I miss Disneyland. I'm okay. I mean, you don't need to feel sorry for me. I, I think I've really healed through it. I really mean this is an illustration, not a therapy session. Um, and it was my first experience of what's called fear of missing out, right? FOMO we Have heard of this? I looked it up because I'm not cool and I have to look things up in Wikipedia that I should know about. And here's what Wikipedia says. Fear of missing out is a pervasive apprehension that others might be having rewarding experiences from which one is absent. The social angst is characterized by a desire to stay continually connected with what others are doing. This is why we're like on our phones and everything all the time, right? FOMO is also defined as a fear of regret which may lead to a compulsive concern that one might miss an opportunity for social interaction, a novel experience, profitable investment, or other satisfying events. In other words, FOMO perpetuates the fear of having made the wrong decision on how to spend time. As you can imagine how things could be different, right? How many of us struggle with the fear of missing out? And just, you know, social media just... I mean, I was in Yosemite yesterday, so of course I'm like, pictures, and as soon as I get them, you know, everybody else, I'm in Yosemite, you're missing out, you know. (laughs) And you're like, well, I'm over here. And, and it's you know, we're we're just, we have this, this sort of overwhelming longing not to miss out on what's most important in life. Well, let me just say this. If you have FOMO about anything, Okay. It should be about missing out on the gospel and being a part of what God is doing with the gospel. That's what we should most be afraid of missing out on. That experience, that opportunity to be on the front lines, pouring into people's lives in ways that are going to make eternal difference, right? That's that's the great experience. That's the great call. And when Jesus walks by these fishermen on the sea in Galilee, and he calls them, and they're like, I don't want to have fear of missing out. And they immediately drop their nets, and they follow him. And they go with him, and it becomes this incredible journey that absolutely rocks their world and blows their minds and changes everything about who they are. And Jesus is still walking by the shore, metaphorically, and calling people to be a part of, of his incredible redemptive plan. What a privilege we have. And let me talk about that. This is What does this mean? That, that, this, that we're being called into this great, wonderful possibility. What does it mean? What does it mean? How does this redefine our conception of discipleship? Let me throw out a few ideas from this text. What this means is that discipleship is first and foremost, a kind of a promotion. It's a promotion. Now, it's not the kind of promotion that means you leave your current job. Sometimes it does, but a lot of times it doesn't. It's a promotion from whatever it is that we're doing in life into the greatest work that has ever taken place in this world, which is the proclamation of the coming of the kingdom of God and all of the healing. Next week we're going to look at the, what happens when the kingdom of God comes. People are healed. You know, Evil is eradicated spiritually, lives are just transformed. Amazing things happen. And so we're called to be a part of this most incredible work. I was thinking about this because of the election season, so let's just play with this idea a little bit. Um, (laughs) Groans across. (laughs) Um, Who do you think has more impact into the world, the president or the obedient follower of Christ? I mean, think about this. Now, you can disagree with me. I'm not trying to, you know, but think about this. Even the president, which we would sort of say, you know, has this really important job to make an impact on the world. Even the president is limited in the ability to impact somebody's life for all eternity. But you, regular, average follower of Jesus Christ, have tremendous potential to impact somebody's life for all of eternity. What an incredible responsibility that we've been given. What an incredible opportunity we've been given to be able to to bring somebody into an awareness of the good news of Jesus Christ. Wow, this is incredible. So in many ways, this is a promotion. We've all, discipleship is a promotion You're being invited into an incredible work that God is doing in the world. And like I said, it doesn't often mean, sometimes it means you leave your day job, but a lot of times it means you stay in your day job, but now you approach it differently. You look at your relationships differently. And, And, you know, we've talked about this more in our Avodah ministry, our faith and work ministry, and we will continue to do so, so I won't spend time unpacking that. But you do this as you go about, we talked about this last Sunday, as you go about your your current ministry, your current life, you do this work that God has given you. So discipleship is a promotion. It's also a prioritization, discipleship is. Look at these disciples, they left their nets, and more importantly, I think, they left their families. So James and John... You know, we're working with Zebedee that everybody knew, probably a well-known, successful fisherman, and we're the sons of Zebedee, you know, we're going to take over the family business, Um, Zebedee and Sons is in the future, and they decide to let go of that in order to answer the call of Jesus Christ. And so it's a reprioritizing. Now, as I said, it doesn't always mean that we we drop our our fishnets, whatever those are. But it certainly at least means that we approach the way that we do our work differently. It's a reprioritizing. I was talking to somebody who said that in their home group this week, this was one of the key things that came out, is that if we're really going to answer the call of Jesus in this way, it's going to mean thinking about our lives differently. If we're going to start to pour into others, it's going to mean thinking about the priorities of our lives in a different way. What is really most important? What do we prioritize? And what I like about these disciples is, it's. I mean, Mark always brings, the word immediately happens twice in verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then verse 20 with uh, James and John, and immediately Uh, He called them and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. There's this immediacy to their response. And I don't think they had everything figured out in that moment, right? They didn't have it all figured out. They didn't know what it was going to mean to follow Jesus exactly. But they knew at that moment that they were going to do it. And they stepped out. They took risk and they were courageous to follow Christ, And this is what happens when we reprioritize it. There's there's a courage that needs to come in with that. We've been talking about discipleship as disciple making. That is, making space in your life to pour into the lives of others from what you have been blessed with the gospel. And that is something that we are sometimes fearful of doing. So let me just ask you, and let's just throw out a few of these. What, What fears do we have when we think about becoming disciple-makers. And just by that, I mean really taking up the challenge to pour into the lives of others. What, just, call, just call them out. What are our fears? Rejection, yeah. Getting entangled, good one, yeah. Failing people, yeah. We're not going to be enough if we come into their lives. What else? Not enough time. Oh, huge in our day right now. Busyness is just... And it, yeah, that's the, that Drucker quote, a lot of it is we're doing things that we're making more efficient things that don't really matter in the long run, yeah. What else? Yeah. You think you have better priorities, you think you have better priorities? yeah. Overbearing. Over, the fear of being overbearing in somebody else's life, oh yeah. Especially in our day right now because that's just not acceptable, you know, unless it's for certain things, you know. But yeah, definitely. What else? Anger? Ah, yeah. Yeah. I was so sad. The, the, the building, the first congregational church was on fire in Berkeley uh, this week, and you probably saw that. And then all the comments of people on the, the news station posted it, and like, uh, you know, a lot of people were like, yeah, good thing this church is burning down. You know, I mean, just amazing stuff. So, yeah, it's fear of that being caught in that. Yes. Fear of saying the wrong thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let me ask you, is God big enough to address all these fears? Right? I mean, yeah, of course. Of course. And this is part of why community is so important, being in relationships where you can talk through what are some of my fears. And you can have people pray for you and you have people speak into your life. So we're, we're, as we process this now and in our home groups and conversations, in between services, wherever it is, we need to come out with our fears a little bit and then be praying for one another. Um, but there's also kind of a shrewdness that we've talked about that comes with this. And, and we're going to probably tackle this topic a little bit more as, as we go along. But um, the thought here is, you know, what if we approached disciple making in the way that we approach most of our other work. I mean, you—you you people are engineers and teachers and scientists, and I mean, just the list goes on and on of the amazing things that people in this room, in this congregation, are doing. And we approach those tasks with incredible shrewdness, skill, logic, rationality, intentionality. When we have a problem, we get out a blank sheet of paper and we write down, "How am I going to solve this problem?" We work through a process. What if we approach disciple making with that same kind of intentionality? And shrewdness. Imagine, imagine what could happen. Well, these disciples, they immediately left and they reprioritized. So it's a promotion, it's a prioritization, it's a process. And I'm so thankful for this one. And this addresses some of our fears. The real wording in the ESV really gets this just perfectly. Uh, verse 17, and Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. I will make you become fishers of men. There's a process that has to take place. For the disciples, this was the beginning of a journey. They were going to walk all the way across Israel and back and and all around. And it was in walking with Jesus and spending the night with Jesus and listening to Jesus and being around Jesus that they were going to become fishers of men. It, it, it took a process, and we have to be a, a weary of that, aware of that as well. It took time to absorb and to integrate into their lives all that Jesus was saying about the kingdom of God and repenting and believing in the gospel. It took time. But they did make progress because by the end of the story, right, they're out sharing the gospel with multitudes, and we're sitting here today because of their faithfulness. And so this process can be brought to a place of real fruit for, for, excuse me, fruitfulness and effectiveness. And then lastly, I would just say that this is, discipleship is to a person. And let me see, that's a little strange. I'm sort of, you know, shoehorning that one in there. Um, you're, you're a learner of somebody. That's what this is. When the rabbis would come by, and students would come to follow them, like is happening with Jesus, they would always call them to Torah, to the law. So you're you're following me as a rabbi, but you're you're a learner of Torah, of the law, of the teaching. Jesus says, you're a learner of me. So you're a disciple, not of just a set of ideas, but you're a disciple of a living person. Jesus Christ, who, though he died, was raised from the dead and continues to reign on high. And and, and so this changes, you know, how we approach this. It's, it makes it full of dynamism and life because God is working in our lives in unique and precious ways to make us become what he's called us to become. And so when you wake up in the morning, it's each morning is filled with new possibilities because... You're learning from another person who's living. That's who Jesus Christ is, and there's a tremendous hope in that. And I just want to say, any of you who are here this morning, and maybe you're, you're sort of dipping your toe into the things of the Christian faith, you maybe don't consider yourself to be a Christian, you're exploring what it means to be a Christian. This is really at the essence, at the core of what it means, is you're becoming a learner of God who is not some sort of dead or far off being, but who has come near to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so to become a Christian, if you want to say it that way, to become a disciple is to become a learner of the living Christ who wants to relate to you on a daily basis, who wants to do you to do life with him, to, to teach you through the scripture, which is written down, but it's, it's, he is the living word as we sang about. And so, so really this is the first thing for you to consider, do I want to begin to become a learner of Jesus Christ? And this is what we're bringing people into, it's not merely just following a set of ideas. All right, really last week in our vision day and this week, we're driving to one simple conviction, and that is, is this, is that discipleship is disciple-making, That's what poured into is really trying to get at. That's what we're meaning, is that you can't follow Jesus, you can't learn from Jesus without also being somebody willing to pour into the lives of others. That's why we're having the testimonies that we're having. And at this point, I'm not even asking you to know how to do that. Okay? You may have some ideas, but that's not even where we start. We start first with a conviction. Is this really what Jesus intended when he called us to be learners? And when you read the text that we read this morning, I don't know how you can come to any other conclusion than what, what it means to be a disciple is to be a disciple maker. It's to be a pursuer of others. It's to pour into other people. So this morning, it's not even what are you going to do yet. We're going to get to that. But it's, it's more of a question of who. who. Is Jesus calling, and is he calling you? And can you, with with a faith like these disciples, immediately say yes, even though you don't know everything that it entails? Can you say, yes, I'm going to become a disciple in the sense that the Bible really teaches as a disciple maker? Because here's, at the end of the day, what my prayer is for us. I don't want any of us to get to the end of life and to have missed the point, right? To get to the very end and to have missed the point. To have spent a life doing things efficiently that were never even really meant to be done or doing important things in ways that ignore the most important thing. The only way to change that, though, is to start with a bit of conviction in your soul. That... To say to the Lord, I am going to follow you in this, even though it scares me, even though I feel busy, even though it seems overwhelming, even though I don't know what it means, even though I'm afraid of being rejected, and all the things that you all said, I'm going to follow you down this path and let you make it happen. So God, would you meet us on this pathway? Right now, this morning, is another opportunity for us to drop our nets, in a sense, to reprioritize our lives to commit to you one more time that, that we want to follow you, we want to make following you and learning from you the highest priority. And that somehow doing that is wrapped up in our loving other people, pouring into them, allowing others to pour into us. Perhaps for some of us this morning could be a, a memorable morning, a, a some, a day that we look back to when we put a stake in the ground and made some changes in our lives to get our priorities aligned with your priorities, Jesus. We're so thankful that this is a process that you superintend, that you give us time and space to be able to to work out the particulars of what this looks like in our lives, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families. But to, today we, we, we commit to you with immediacy. We say yes to you, Lord. I want to be one who pour, who makes of this life all that could possibly be by pouring into... Others, the most precious gift, which is the gospel. Meet us in our prayer, in our conviction this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.